0: If you've got your Bibles there, please keep it open at Acts 23, the end of 22 and beginning of 23, and I'll do the same. And as usual, we'll have a chance for questions later on, so any questions come up on the way through, just keep them in mind and you can ask them at the end. Let's pray though, shall we? Heavenly Father, we want to be people who know you all the better, that we know your love for us, that we know your plan for us and our world so that we can live in light of that, so that we can live in a way that is honouring to you and that is hopeful for the future that you have promised us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One day, every person who has ever lived will be raised to life again some to eternal punishment, some to eternal life. It's what the Bible calls the resurrection of the dead and it's what our passage today is about. And in this passage we see the interaction between two men. One man denies that that resurrection will happen and it leads him to hypocritical, godless religion. The other man is convinced that it will happen. And it leads him to a life of unshakable hope. Let's have a look at how this interaction plays out. You might have noticed and remember if you've been here over previous weeks that we're really picking up the story in the middle of one long scene that's been going over several weeks for us, but spanning over several days in the city of Jerusalem in the early 60s or late 50s A.D., The Apostle Paul has arrived in Jerusalem and after not being there for very long, he's been attacked in the temple by people who hated the message that he was speaking because it was a message that invited non-Jews, Gentiles, into the family of God and they didn't like that and so they were trying to beat him to death. But he was rescued by the commander of the Roman garrison that was stationed in Jerusalem. So that's what's been happening previously but the commander doesn't know what all the fuss is about he can see what's going on but it's a argument between jews about jewish things and it's been happening in the language of aramaic which apparently the commander doesn't know so he can see what's going on but he has no idea actually what the problem is and he wants to find out and so he orders the governing body of the jews the sanhedrin to gather together so that he can work this out with them and find out what's going on. You see, the Romans, even though they had conquered Israel and were uh, set up in Jerusalem, they gave the Jews a certain amount of autonomy to govern their own affairs. And the Sanhedrin was the authoritative body of the Jews that was responsible for doing that, and it was led by the high priest. So as I said, the The commander of the the Romans has gathered them together so we can find out what's going on. Have a look at it there with me in verse 30. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered that the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. So that really sets the scene for this encounter that we're going to see today between Paul and the Sanhedrin or I guess really between Paul and the high priest. And the first thing that we're going to see in this encounter, and this is our first point, is a condemnation of hypocritical, godless religion. Paul is the one who's being accused, but the high priest is the one who is ultimately condemned. Have a look at it with me. From from verse 1, Paul first speaks, and he looks straight at his accusers and he says... In verse 2, he declares his faithfulness to God and he says, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. I fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Now, when Paul says that, he's not particularly talking about his moral character and conduct at this point. What he's talking about is the duty that God has given him, the task, the job that God has given him to do and... He's saying, I fulfilled that in all faithfulness. And what he's saying when he says that is he's repeating what he said a couple of times previously, which is an echo of the language of the prophet Ezekiel. 600 odd years beforehand, the prophet Ezekiel had been given a job to do by God, a duty to warn God's people that judgment was coming. Like a watchman on a city wall whose job is to look out for the attacking army who's going to come against the city, Ezekiel's job was to watch and to warn people that that was coming. And that was also the job that God had given Paul to do. Now, in Ezekiel's day, the judgment that was coming was literal army that was coming against Jerusalem to attack the walls of Jerusalem because they had turned away from God. But now in Paul's day, the whole world is waiting for God's final judgment on the last day. And there is no place to hide from that judgment. Even in the grave is no place to hide because God will raise the dead on that day to judge both the living and the dead. And Paul's message to everyone everywhere was that day is coming, but it is not too late to turn back to God. And so his message was a warning, but also good news. And he spent the last 25 years travelling around the world, telling people exactly that. And it's gotten him into a lot of trouble. But he has done it anyway, and that's why he can stand before these people and say, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. But clearly, as you see, the high priest Ananias doesn't like that, doesn't like Paul, doesn't like his message, doesn't like this claim that he is making, and he orders someone to go and punch Paul in the mouth. Now, I've never been punched in the mouth while trying to give a speech, but I can imagine it would be pretty off-putting. Just ask Chris Rock, It was what, exactly a year ago, right, that he was presenting at the Oscars, and he said something that Will Smith didn't like, and it looked to me like Will Smith was sitting you know, not far away from him, and he walked up onto the stage and slapped Chris in the mouth. And Chris didn't know what to say, didn't know what to do. He was stunned. But Paul, after being punched in the mouth, was not so easily put off. He responds with a prophetic condemnation of the high priest Ananias. Have a look at what he says there in verse 3. He says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall." You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you violate the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Now, Paul is exactly right. Ananias has breached the laws of Old Testament trial by commanding that someone who has not been found guilty be struck. But I think there's something deeper going on here, and it's in those unusual words of Paul. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Not a common curse that you hear people say of others. And when I read those words, my mind immediately goes to the words of Jesus. When he is speaking against the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, he called them whitewashed tombs. Something that is made to look nice, clean on the outside, but it's a tomb. And so inside it is full of death and decay. And when Jesus said it was a condemnation of their hypocrisy, looking good on the outside, but full of wickedness on the inside. And Ananias was being hypocritical, judging Paul according to the law while breaking the law himself. One of the hallmarks of empty religion, of godless religion, is hypocrisy. Jesus said it. Ananias is doing it saying one thing, doing another, giving a good appearance on the outside that is not reflected on the inside, caring about what people see rather than what God sees, and Ananias is full of that hypocrisy. But there's something more going on here because Paul is speaking a prophetic condemnation against his high priest, again in the language of the prophet Ezekiel who I mentioned just a moment ago. Ezekiel, as I said, like Paul, was a faithful messenger of God. He was delivering the message that God gave him to deliver. But in those same prophecies, in Ezekiel chapter 13, God also condemns the false messengers, the false prophets who were giving people a wrong message from God, a message that God did not give them to speak. And in particular, he said they were not preparing people for God's judgment that was coming. He said they were proclaiming peace when judgment is coming. They were proclaiming safety when it was not a time for safety. And here's the connection with Acts 23. Ezekiel 13 says that those false messengers, those false prophets were whitewashing walls. Walls that were crumbling and falling down. So in that case, it wasn't just about cleaning dirty walls. It was about putting putty and paint on walls that are structurally unsound. You come across a wall that is falling down. It is not going to last. And you say, let's just putty up the cracks and paint over it and everything will be fine. That's what a whitewashed wall is. It might look fine, but it will not hold up. And it certainly won't be any protection against God's coming judgment. It's not a wall that you can safely take refuge behind. It will collapse. You might be aware that in the last year, we've actually had the church over here painted on the inside. It was badly in need of it, and it looks pretty good now. And I went in while they were doing it, and I noticed that they did putty up some cracks before they painted over it. But I'm pretty sure... Lots, apparently. But I'm pretty sure that it is structurally sound still. In fact I wouldn't be going in there to be honest if it wasn't. I mean how reckless and foolish would it be if it was structurally unsafe, if it was condemned and about to fall down to just putty up the cracks and paint over it and say everything is fine here. Let's just carry on as usual and pretend that it's all fine. I mean that's what the the builders in Turkey are getting in trouble for right now when the earthquake and so many buildings fell down because the buildings were not structurally safe. I mean, how much more, how much worse is it for people who are giving false assurances about God's coming judgment? And that's what Israel's prophets were doing in the time of Ezekiel. And God declared his condemnation of them. In Ezekiel 13, God says, I will strike that whitewashed wall with such a storm that it will collapse and be destroyed. That false confidence will collapse and so will the people who are giving that false confidence. And now, in front of the Sanhedrin, Paul is making that same prophetic condemnation of the high priest. He says, you are that whitewashed wall and God will strike you. And he did. It was only a few years later, in 66 AD, there was an uprising in Jerusalem. The Jews revolted against their Roman invaders, in, uh, overlords, and Ananias sided with the Romans. And so the Jewish revolutionaries found Ananias and they killed him. But even that is nothing compared to the day when God will raise the dead And Ananias will face God's final judgment. A day that he did not believe would come. And that was his problem, as we'll see in a moment. God was, sorry, Ananias was busy running the mechanisms of religion, but it was empty and godless religion. He was maintaining the structure that was claiming to be the way that people could come to God. But at the same time, he was opposing the very message that was actually the way that people could come to God. And he was benefiting from that in the process, in status, in power, in wealth. And through the apostle, God declared his condemnation of that hypocritical and godless expression of religion. And the warning that we see in Ananias is that it is completely possible to be very much involved in religion but completely dishonouring to God. And as we see it in Ananias, I think the the clearest warning is for people who are involved in leadership in churches, pastors, Bible study leaders, youth leaders, kids' church leaders, parish counsellors. There is a warning here for people in leadership. I heard a story a few years ago about the evangelist John Chapman who has written a great book called A Fresh Start. It's about how anyone can have a fresh start with God wherever you are, it's a great book. And the story goes that one day John received a phone call from this guy who was a minister in a country church and he said, I've just read this book of yours, A Fresh Start and I've just come to put my trust in Jesus for the first time. After years of being a minister in a church, running a church, preaching sermons, leading Bible studies, who knows what else. And he wasn't even trusting Jesus himself. That is godless religion. Now, that's a good news story because that man did, in the end, put his trust in Jesus. But sadly, that is not the only story like that, and they don't all end with good news. And so this is a warning for those who are involved in leading and especially for those of us who benefit from that in some way and not just financially but obviously that as well but but also for people who gain some kind of feeling of significance or importance from a place of leadership and all the more reason for all of us to be praying for people in leadership. That's the warning but it's actually a warning For all of us too, that warning against godless religion. It is entirely possible and sadly common, as I said, to be full of religion but empty of God. That kind of religion cannot save you. There is no refuge to hide in godless religion. In fact, it's dangerous. To take that idea of whitewashed walls that are structurally unsafe, think of churches around the world that are the most beautiful buildings in their city. Churches everywhere are beautiful buildings and they're often built to inspire feeling like you're in the presence of God. But if they are not also places that draw people to trust in the blood of Jesus and to believe in the resurrection of the dead, then they are just whitewashed walls puttying over the cracks that will collapse on the heads of those who think those grand buildings or the religion that happens there will save them. They are no place to shelter from, God, from God's coming judgment when he raises the dead. And neither is this place. If this place isn't particularly spectacular, that one over there looks okay. And there may be some of us here today who are trusting in whitewashed walls, who are hanging around church doing the right things, saying the right things, maybe even relying on other people to do business with God for you, but have never actually turned to put your trust in Jesus. If that is you, then today is the day to find refuge in the only safe place to shelter from God's judgment, in the blood of Jesus, by trusting him. That's our first point the condemnation of hypocritical, godless religion. But now there is the positive side, the hope of the resurrection. And this is exactly what the high priest Ananias did not believe. Along with his entire religious faction, the Sadducees, they did not believe that that day would come, the resurrection of the dead. And so as the meeting of the Sanhedrin progresses... Paul knew that there were two very distinct religious factions amongst this group of people that were trying to condemn him, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the high priest was a Sadducee. Paul knew the differences between these two, and he probably knew that they would struggle to come to a common mind to condemn him if they couldn't agree with each other. And so have a look at what he calls out in the Sanhedrin in verse 6. He highlights a very clear distinction between them. From the middle of the verse, he says, My brothers, I'm a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And we're told in verse 8 that the Pharisees believe in the resurrection and the Sadducees deny it, like the high priest. And so this looks like from Paul, this clever and shrewd attempt to gain the support of the Pharisees so that they can't unite against him. But I'm not sure that was his primary motive and it certainly didn't work out that well for him. If you look in the very next verses, he nearly got torn to pieces in the violent uproar that followed. So the Roman commander had to come and rescue him again. Now I think the real reason that he said, I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead is because that is exactly the truth. That has been his message everywhere he went and that is what has got him in trouble everywhere he went. In fact, that's the reason why he went from being a persecutor of the church 25 years ago to being standing here today on trial in front of them because Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to him, as we heard last week. Paul was confronted with the undeniable proof of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and that that was the beginning of what God would do one day, that He will raise the dead on the last day, and that Jesus will be the judge. That was Paul's message. And that is good news if you are on the side of Jesus. Notice that he calls it the hope of the resurrection of the dead. That future that Paul knows will come is not a future of fearful judgment. For him, But it's a hopeful expectation of something better. And what that hope does for Paul is it kind of bleeds back into the present so that he can live now with that unshakable hope. Because when you know something good is coming, it enables you to live with hope as you look forward to it in the present. For those who have taken refuge in the blood of Jesus, there will be a future world and a future life that is beyond anything that we can imagine, anything that causes pain or heartache, suffering or sadness now, that will be a thing of the past. And God will wipe every tear from our eyes. And if that future is certain, then how can the hope of that, how can the, the looking forward to that not bleed back into the present and transform Life now, so that we live with hope now. Whatever is going on in our lives. Because we're on the side of the God who can raise the dead. And who has done it already. Who raised Jesus. And who will raise us too. And so there is nothing up to and including death that can stand in the way of God's love for you. That can stand in the way of that very good future that God has promised. And Paul was so convinced of that good news and so convinced that everyone needs to know this, that he was willing to face accusations and beatings and prison and even death. And notice the comfort that Jesus gives him in the very last verse of our passage, in verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. That's an encouragement from Jesus to keep going the way that he has been going. And that can't actually be all that easy because Paul's testimony about Jesus in Jerusalem has not exactly been all beer and skittles. He's been beaten and now he's a prisoner. It's not going all that well. But Jesus wants him to keep going anyway. What could possibly keep him going, to do the same thing again. The hope of the resurrection of the dead. Knowing that he is on the side of the guy who was beaten death, and that Jesus is with him every step of the way and so nothing that they can do to him will ultimately harm him. Jesus is with him. And that is the promise to us as well. Now we won't all get that same personal encounter with Jesus to encourage us that Paul had. But we do have the same promise, that Jesus is with us. If our trust is in him, that is the promise that we have, that the conqueror of death is on our side. And I know I'm all too aware of the difficulties in life that we all face. I may not know the specific difficulties that you face, but I know that we all face them. Some of them are simply because life is hard and we live in a world that is under the burden of sin and suffering and death. And we are not spared from that. It makes life hard and we all face it in our own different ways. And sometimes that's made even harder because we are following Jesus in a world that is not following Jesus and that calls us foolish or ignorant or even dangerous for doing that. And I feel the burden of that. And I know that you do too. And that's exactly what Paul was experiencing in Jerusalem at a whole other level to what we experience. What is it that will keep us going? To live with hope now while we face those difficulties. Only this hope that Paul speaks of. The hope of the resurrection of the dead. That God did raise Jesus And that he will raise all the dead and that he will give a new and perfect life to everyone who trusts him. And that right now, Jesus is the Lord of life and death and he is with us. That's the confidence that Paul had while he stood facing his accusers. And that confidence is ours too. It's a confidence for the future that should bleed back into the present so that whatever is going on in our lives now, we can live with that same unshakable hope. Let's pray that we will. Heavenly Father, you know the difficulties that we face in our lives at the moment. And Father, we ask that as we face them, you will help us to face them knowing that we are on the side of Jesus, the conqueror of death. And Father, we ask that that will cause us to look forward with unshakable hope to that day when you will raise the dead and welcome us into that perfect eternal life with you. And Father, we ask also that it will guard us from that hypocritical and godless outward religion that is so common in our world, but that brings no pleasure to you. We pray this for ourselves and for each other. In the name of Jesus, amen.